Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work here. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport, and I'm joined by features editor Simon Aaron, editor Nick Trott, and our special guest, Paul Stewart. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and coming all the way to Finchley to, to come, and, come and chat. Thank you for having me. Um, we obviously also have Alan Hyde um, behind, behind the, uh, the audio equipment. Um, Alan, thank you very much as always. I, I know that you were filming The Queen last week, so it's not quite, as, not quite such an occasion as that, but hopefully we won't disappoint too much. Now, Paul, if I'm not mistaken, you're about to go off and have some lunch with Andrew Frankel after this um, for, the, for the lunch with feature in the magazine. Is that right? I, I believe so. I, um, yeah, he, he, well, he got emailed me and uh, actually it was through the BRDC, oddly enough. And, uh, I'm surprised that was an interesting way to get to me, but uh, it was nice that he got in contact. And so, um, so I'll be seeing him afterwards. So we have loads of readers' questions. Um, so we will come to those in a bit, uh, ranging from, from questions about Stuart Grand Prix to, well, loads of, loads of topics, which is great. Um, what I wanted to do was rewind right back to the start. And Simon mentioned that you might have borrowed a friend's driving license in order to go and uh, do a race uh, course. Is that is that correct? And and also faked your name as well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was uh, it, basically I the first time I had a sort of burning desire, which you know call it the bug. Was uh, I was seventeen, and um, I had been the British Grand Prix, and I had just got my driver's license. And up until then, whenever I was with my father in particular, you know, and you were at Monaco Grand Prix as a kid or something in the elevator, the obvious thing somebody would do is, you know, rather than engage my father, they would look down at me and say, you know, you're going to become a racing driver. And I would always look up, no, not again, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I always said that. And then I did the, had this experience at British Grand Prix. I had a one, I mean, I, I thought, this is interesting. I, I'd like, you know, maybe you know, more of this. And um, and so I approached my father. I had got all the information on racing schools. Uh, at that time, it was to do it at Snetterton with the Jim Russell School. And uh, I had all the information set up. We were living in Switzerland at the time. And I had, right now, I've got to go and tell him what I want to, I want to do this. <laughs> and uh, I still remember the whole, you know, the moment. And, and I, it was a really difficult thing to, to bring up, bearing in mind that my father, I knew, would never want me to become a racing driver. Unlike, you know, many young drivers that come through karting, he was, I knew he was vehemently against it. And really because so many of his friends had got killed. And uh, so it was understandable. And anyway, I said, look, so I would want to do this racing school thing. And he was so let down. You know, it was like, but I said, I've got to say it, you know. And uh, it took quite a lot of courage, bizarrely. And... Um, the bottom line is, he, we said, well, let's go in through, we'll talk, to, talk about it in my office in the house. And um, I remember going into the, uh, to his office at the time, and straight ahead of me was a picture of Joe Seifert, 
and he goes, there's another one, you know, and uh, and he he's just processing all of this. And uh, actually, I was at the race where Joseph was killed, and that's one of the memories I have as a young boy. There's a whole I remember these these different things uh, with drivers having uh, getting killed. And um, anyway, we sat down, and he talked me out of it. <laughs> so, so then I, he said, look, if you go to university and you still want to do it, then, I'm, then, I'll, then I'll look at helping you out and seeing how we can you know, do it. But he was adamant that if I do it now, you're on your own. Now, I'm living in Switzerland. I ain't got the money. There was no chance of me becoming a racing driver. It was a bit short of, short of racetracks as well. So it's exactly. Yeah. Well, the mountain roads are pretty good, but yeah. that's another story. <laughs> and uh, and so when I did go racing, I uh, went to the racing school at Brands Hatch. And um, I, well, I, before I signed up for it, um, I said, I want to do it. He didn't set it up. He, I said, I'm going. I want to do this thing. And um, he said, well, and it was Stuart Turner. He said, we should do it under an assumed name. At, he was at Ford Motorsports at the time and had helped be part of my father's career. And so I borrowed my friend's driver's license. Robin Congdon was his name, which um, raised a few chuckles. And I, I sort of, you know, poor Robin, because he's a good mate. And I sort of felt that sometimes people <laughs> made fun of him. And, um, but that was it, under an assumed name. And it was just so that I could be, um, I could do it without anyone saying, oh, yeah, he's got potential. Here's Jackie's boy, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was it was a it was good advice, and it, and it was a good thing. Yeah, help me. So so, going back to the moment where you realised you had this drive to be a, a racing driver, did that come from messing around at home on 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 dirt bikes, or was it the element of competition that you really craved at that point? That there was obviously a trigger somewhere where you thought, mm. this, I have to do this. Well, I, I, I've always been very competitive um, in terms of sports and things, team sports. Not so good, but uh, things like cross-country running, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of that, and um, skiing. Um, we had some motorcycles. My father uh, and mother bought my brother and I two little motorcycles one day, and um, it was out the blue. Again, he didn't want us, everyone in Switzerland about my age had mopeds, so they could all have a bit of freedom and go and see their mates and go into town. But there was associated dangers with being on the roads as a 14-year-old back then. It was when you were, I think, we were allowed to have it. And um, so he, I got out of the blue. It wasn't even Christmas. These two motorcycles were there, a little one for my brother and a slightly big one for, my, for myself. And, um, but it was for dirt roads, you know, for dirt, you know, around the fields and stuff. And so I drove that thing into the ground. I mean, there wasn't a corner I didn't take, which I didn't sort of felt like extracted as much as I could out of it, no matter what it was, run a tree or there's nothing slow about it. So, yeah, and I've always been, I like speed. And I just didn't realize the connection between that and motor, you know, and wanting to become a racing driver because it was that sort of obstacle, if you like, parental obstacle for understandable reasons. Um, but then when it sort of clicked and I got it, um, it was it was it was um, it was a relief in some ways, you know. Yeah. But you couldn't shake it. Well, I, 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 there's no way of me being dulled. I just you know I had no idea. So when I was at university, um, and it was my last summer off, I worked in banks and God knows what, you know, New York and London and Geneva and. And I'd sort of figure out, is this what it is when I, you know, <laughs> leave, you know, or, or whatever, that version. Of. 
And uh, I said, well, this summer, it was the, the summer before I started what they call my senior year. It's a four-year course in America. And it was my last summer off. I'm going to do something. I've got to roll a dice here. And one of the things I looked at doing was working on an oil rig in Alaska. I said, I'll never do it any time in my life, but I'll, I had this fixation. I want to do it. And then, but the other thing was if I could, you know, by some miracle, uh, do some racing. Um, having done that little short racing course, it was a spring break while everyone else was down at the beach and having fun. Um, during this American spring break, I was uh, doing the course at Brands Hatch, came back from that and said, I know I want to see if we can put a summer program together. And um, at the time, people were starting to help out, actually. There was some, I started getting some deals, because I had some friends that I knew then, and they, um, and they said, oh, we could do this, we could do that. And I mean, all sorts, you know, Cellnet were quite heavily involved in the sport at the time with Damon. And that was one of the potential possibilities of putting a program together. And, um, and I was on my own on that at that point. And, um, and my father, we've always had a close relationship. Um, but for those who know him, he, he likes to, to have input. <laughs> he was feeling a bit left out at that point, I think. And he said, okay, right. And uh, he didn't want these people helping his son out in motorsports. And um, he didn't say as much, but that's basically how was the sort of the, the, the seed that created the relationship that we had together which ultimately was led on to, to Paul Stewart Racing and everything else. Um, can I ask, when, obviously, you know, when you very first started, you went under your friend's name, but when you did start racing, um, how much of a burden was the surname? Because, I mean, I suppose you obviously grew up and you didn't know anything else, and you had people coming up in lifts saying, oh, you're going to be a racer, so you knew uh, quite about it, but was it, was it still quite a heavy weight on your shoulders? Uh, you know, I did, first of all, I didn't know any different, um, and... I think a lot of young drivers would have given the right hand to be in my position. So I kind of, I got that too. So I, I figured there's a little bit of, you know, if there was a little bit of uh, negative media around me being, you know, having an accident or, or something of that kind. And, and maybe even, I knew people might be thinking, well, who's this upstart coming in? He hasn't done karting. He hasn't done this and that. And here he is slotting in to, to, to at that time, the, um, the junior Formula Four championship, Townsend Torsen series. And, um, but you know, I just had to get on with it. You've got to be thick-skinned, and, 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 and Simon will no doubt remember more about that period than I will, possibly. Uh, I, I remember quite. The first time I met you was actually in the um, cafeteria at Alton Park. I do remember that. It was late 86, beginning of 87. In 80, it, would be, it would have been 87. It would have been 87. Uh, oh, in 80. You did the part well, it would have been 86, in 87 was when I was racing in, full, in Formula season. Ford. Yeah. yeah, I had three months during my summer break in America. So then went back to university. So that would have been up in Alton Park in, in 87. That was my yeah. first year. Glad, glad we can we, we got the date tied down. <laughs> that, it doesn't surprise me that Simon knew exactly. Did I behave when myself, Simon? Yeah, reasonably. You seem you, you seem you seem like a very well adjusted adjusted young lad. I thought, yeah, I know, you came across well. I'm kicking him under the table, <laughs> by the way. Well, that's that's a relief. Otherwise, that, yeah. uh, the next forty five minutes can be quite awkward. Um, so, you mentioned Paul Stewart racing because that you started in eighty eight. Um, how did that come about, and and wh why did it start? Well, um, I, uh, have it, I was racing with Van Diemen, and they had put a little sort of junior team, little team up for me. Uh, uh, not the senior championship, which Eddie Irvine was racing in. Um, Paolo Carcassi was doing the four for two thousand. There's a couple of other Bra Brazilians up there, and um, and I sort of worked out that having done 
the, the junior championship. I needed to go into a, uh, I wanted to go up the following year if possible. And um, uh, rather than do the senior championship, I can't remember what was going on then. I really didn't have enough experience, but the former Ford championship was potentially looking like a good way of developing. Um, it wasn't gonna be as strong as a year before that when you had Leto and all those guys. Um, and I, I'd gone to see some of the teams. I went, well, I saw you know Keith Wiggins, all these guys. I went around and saw them. Well, how much would it cost to come and, you know, what, what do you need? You know, do you have budgets? Not. So I worked out all the numbers, and um, and then I can't remember who it was that said it, um, but I was, you know, thought maybe it could be done myself. It would possibly Adrian Reynard trying to sell me cars, and. Almost certainly, Adrian Reynolds. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we looked at that uh, possibility, and um, it, it it made sense to me because um, it, at that level, you don't need to to, to get too many people. I could, um, and I'd also had worked out. I was fortunate. I went to the Mexican Grand Prix in '86, and um, I met Duncan Lee from uh, from Camel. And we're on the plane heading down there, and he was in charge of the sponsorship for for, for motorsports. Uh, and uh, I got on well with him, and then I got word that, and I didn't say anything to him at that point because I was still at university. And I got word that they might be interested in doing something because they were looking at, 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 uh, at you know, at helpful being a son of a, of a Formula One driver, and they had a few other. They were doing uh, Paul Warwick. Uh, they were they had a David Brabham, David, Damon yeah, and people, yeah, and so, so I got in touch with them, and um, they were interested, and then I, uh, and then my father and I were working together on that at that point, and I kind of what it would have been after that, but it was just like, look, we're going to start this thing, and then what do we need? We just need, you know, we had Roy Top as a mechanic and two other people, and and that was you know that was it. We got going, and they provided, and we said, "Well, this is what the budget would be. Are you interested?" He said, "Yeah, we'll do it." So um, it was a pretty, a pretty good way. When we knew for that, we could we could make it work, and then we got a few other sponsors to come in, that sort of allowed us a bit more uh, flexibility to do the things we wanted to do it properly. Were you also keen to step up straight from Junior Ford Formula Ford sixteen hundred to two thousand, because you started quite late in the sport relative relative to some of the other guys around you? I felt I had to do some catching up, and um, and for sure I was 21 in uh, in in 87, and uh, so here I am, and the only reason I was doing it was to become a Formula One driver. I mean, I wasn't doing it to to have a play. You know, I was I was I was serious about it, and I was you know committed and driven. Um, you know, one could question and we'll say, well, the team side, you know, is that a, a, you know should I be just concentrate the driving and. Um, you know, I'd been through university, I knew it was a risk, and I didn't want to be sort of left out in the cold, um, having sort of wasted valuable years of my life, and I was ambitious. So it, it, uh, it made sense to have the team and to do it in Formula Ford 2000, you said, to, to sort of to, just to sort of to get close to Formula 3 and be a bit better prepared for, 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 for when that time was right to do that. I, uh, what I want to do is just rewind you to Snatterton in 1989. Um, and you haven't mentioned, you haven't mentioned Cadwell Park Formula Four 2000 win yet. <laughs> what did I do at Cadwell Park Formula 2000? Remind me of that one. What did I do? Yeah, that was your first race win. What was that? Your first race win. 
Oh, Cadwell, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, sorry, I was thinking Alton for a second there. Yeah, Cadwell Park, absolutely. You know, I mean, th thank you, Simon. Um, I mean, of all the places to break your duck. Exactly. Well, yeah. Cadwell Park was, was, was uh, for those who haven't been to Cadwell Park, it's uh, not many people have. I'm, I'm assuming, <laughs> Simon, <laughs> yeah, you, you've been uh, it is, uh, it's a It's a fantastic circuit, a driver's circuit, ups and downs and all the rest of it, and jumps and things. And... Um, it was a key win, actually, if it's, it's relevant to this, to, to what you're asking me, because I'd, I had one race there, and um, I didn't do well in it, and then, and I was kind of pissed off as well before that, because I was traipsing around the country with um, a van, driving this camel van with my racing car in the back of it, I mean, doing promotions for the Carphone Group at that time, and I, I literally, I'd leave or workshop in, in um, down at that time was in, in Stockbridge in Hampshire um, and you know drive up to, to, to you know to Edinburgh to Newcastle you know up and then head back down you know for, to Alton for a test or and then meet up with Roy Top who had another car because we had two cars which was kind of one of the luxury that we had in case it was a problem or whatever and um, anyway I went down to Cadwell Park and I would before that been really sort of this is I can't do this. Something's got to give. I can't, you know, run all day doing these trips and get down, wake up in the morning, do a test, and so on. And there was a there was a moment um, when my I was speaking to my father, and I remember in the van by myself, and I was, you know, I hadn't had a good race, and I said, "Look, this is this is not working. You know, I've uh, I can't do both. I'm you know under enormous pressure." And uh, anyway, he talked me back into it again. <laughs> I should yeah. stop getting his advice. <laughs> I love my father. But uh, he sort of, and I could, and I understood, you know, I could put my emotions aside, but, you know, but the bottom line is, he said, look, you know, if we could, we could really build up a good company here if we sort of just stick to it and all the rest of it. And bear in mind, I was the guy that was on the ground here doing it all at the time. So it was it was a great learning experience and it was things that I should be doing at, at, at that at that age you know but I went back to Cadwell Park having not done well in that in the first race there and I, I drove up and I arranged with I think it was Graham Glue to take me around the track uh, during the lunch break for a couple of laps or at the end of the day and uh, it's a hell of a drive up there and I left from Southampton went up um, and it was, we must have done four or five laps and it was all it took and something I picked up on and I went there for the next race and I won it. And, um, and that same weekend was the weekend that Camel had won the Italian Grand Prix when Senna was taken out by, uh, by the, the Williams and the chicane and Prost had had his retirement. So, uh, they, I guess I must have had Camel on the car and I won my race. And uh, somebody had said to me, if you win one race a season, you've got your budget for Formula 3 next year. And I was, you know, and I thought, that, you know, so it was pretty, it was a timely thing. And that's what led us to, you know, part of the ingredients. I'm not trying to claim everything here, but it, it was it was part of the mix that sort of catalyst. And did, and did someone then say to you, if you win a race at Snetterton by crossing the line backwards, you've got your budget for the year after that? No, Simon, you're taking advantage <laughs> of it. Something. <laughs> remember that, dis that rem dyslexia rules KO. You know, <laughs> getting things the wrong way around is part of being dyslexic. And uh, yeah, well, I, that was another experience altogether. And um, it was uh, I'd started sort of that was 
and stop me if I'm going on too long here, because I, um, I I'd done basically I'd done three months of formal Ford. 1600, went back to university, got my degree, came back in and started racing in Formula Ford in June of 88. So finished off that season, having done nothing in between. And then here I was now going into Formula 3 in the beginning of 89 against, you know, uh, Ricard Radel, Hakkinen, McNish, uh, Brabham. Mean, uh, Brabham. There was a whole bunch of tough drivers. And at that time, there was two great, you know, you had a, a you had to qualify to get in the main race too. Um, so there's, they called it, you know, the, the wanker race. If you didn't set a good time in qualifying, you were in the, uh, excuse me, can I say the wanker race? That's, that's what they all <laughs> called it, you know, I'm, I'm not paying any judgment on it. And there was a couple of occasions I was in that. Um, but, you know, here I was learning a, against, you know, arguably the best championship, one of the best Formula 3 championships. And um, anyway, I had some bad races, and I, but I was learning. And then um, Snetterton that year, uh, beginning to show, break in there a little bit amongst the mix. And then, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I qualified third. They had two grids. I, don't know, I think I must have qualified first or second in my session. Maybe it was second. But they used to qualify one side of the grid and the other. And they did deem that my side must have been the slower session, sorry, the quicker session, because I couldn't be up there with some of the more respected drivers. Um, and it might be dangerous to have it up there. I think that, that might have been something like Dick Bennett's that sort of argued that case in front of Stuart, <laughs> who's representing the West Surrey and McNish and so on. And so the race started. Ironically, these two guys stalled at the start. <laughs> and I led away. And then... Um, and then, anyway, I was leading the race. I thought, oh, shit, what do I do now? You know, this is this is pretty. And um, yeah, you know, I just I'm not, you know, first lap coming through. You've got Corum. There's a long corner, and then you got Russell Chicane. For those who remember that, with a fast chicane back then, where if you got it wrong, it was big accidents. And uh, I, I still remember that first lap run. I said, I'm not lifting through here. I had Higgins behind me. And uh, I'm not going to lift on my first lap round here. You'd normally you'd try to bed yourself in slightly, but anyway, kept my lead. And then I, God knows what lap it was on, but it wasn't that heavily into the race. And I came across a back marker where I could see him ahead of me, and I was going to catch him outside of this very fast chicane. And I said, I'm not lifting. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. If I lift now, Higgins is going to pass me. Reading up the next corner, so I kept my foot in, and I still remember it was Dominic Chappelle, the guy that was involved in BBHS all this. And yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. And uh, Dominic Chappelle in a Class B. I was lapping, and I remember I, he his car moved as I came out the chicane, but it moved because he put his hand up to try and point where to go, but his steering wheel moved in that process. So I thought he went to the inside, he letting me to, and I committed and he didn't. He wanted me to go the other way around. And so I was committed to the grass, spun and then trying to keep it straight, bear in mind it's quick, and um, end up spinning across the line. But at the same time, Mika Hakkinen had a big accident um, and he, uh, the car was upside down, and so they red flagged it. And I still kept on going, by the way, but I wasn't in the lead. And then they red flagged it, and because they take from the previous lap, I won it. 
Thumbs up to that one. <laughs> what a way to win a race. The recall amazes me, you know, with, with racing drivers. It's, my recall is rubbish, but just the, the detail. Um, I wish I could remember my classes the same way they do <laughs> being in a, in a racing car. So uh, Paul Stewart Racing then stepped up to Formula 3000. Um, and you're with Marco uh, Apicella then. What are your memories of him? Because and, and, uh, he's a very quick driver. Well, he was one of my teammates. Um, that was my first, uh, I guess, in, in the first year of form of um, of, uh, of Formula Three Thousand. By the way, I think I should. I mean, I need to sort of at least one memorable year to finish off in eighty nine was Macau. Were you in Macau that year in eighty nine? I wasn't. No, no. no. So, I, so I got Alton an Park. entry. I got a <laughs> <laughs> probably. I got an entry to Macau, which at that time was was still the, the the big race for young drivers, and it was a little bit questionable. You know, did I deserve to be there because I hadn't won a championship, but I'd won the ra I won a race. So that, but I guess they wanted me in camel sponsors and the whole name thing. And but I'd never been to that race, and uh, I qualified third. You know, ahead of Schumacher, all those guys, and um, it was a proud moment actually. Unfortunately, my car broke down, um, and uh, I was in second place at the time. Schumacher had passed me. I'd never heard of this guy, and. I could still see this guy in the mirrors around the back section and I, I'll take a wide entrance to this place because he can't pass me there and I get a clean exit out. I mean, I, I didn't give very much, but this driver went in like a hammer and it was, uh, as he passed me, I thought, bloody hell, this guy is good. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was Michael. Um, but um, it was a proud moment actually because I shouldn't have been leading a race in Macau at that point in my career. And then to get back to your question, to Formula 3000, Apicella, he was very experienced. I always picked teammates um, that I thought were going to do the best for the team, not something that I thought was going to be, um, that I would have a better chance of beating or, or looking good in front of. And, um, you know, the same applied for Formula 3, Der Derek Hiddings, or, or, or um, for my second year of F3. Then you had uh, Otto Renzing, obviously, who had actually uh, won one of the races in Macau one year. And... So we always picked the right drivers. Napicella was one of those guys. He seemed talented. And uh, unfortunately, the Lola car was a disaster that year. And I was trying to learn a formula with a car that basically didn't work as well as a Reynard by a long way. And it was, it was challenging. And uh, even Marco got, you know, gave up on occasions. If he, he, I, I, was, I just checked the stats the other day because I could, I mean, Marco to me is one of the sports kind of curious lost talents because he was clearly blindingly quick, very, very good, and yet very unlucky a lot of the time. I know he won the Japanese 3000 championship eventually, but um, he finished fifth in the championship in 91. I was trying to think, how the hell did he do that in the Lola T91? Because it, mm. it was a rubbish car. Mm. Mm. It really yeah, was. it was, uh, well, I mean, it, it, I don't know how he did it. And, and um, you know, why he didn't go on, I'm not quite sure. I, uh, I know in a couple of races, you know, he probably didn't... Uh, you know, when he knew he wasn't a chance of the points, uh, he didn't try as hard as he as he would normally do, um, and I don't know if that sort of reflected in somehow in in his in his future ambitions of racing. I'm not sure, you know, um, but he was a good guy, and I got on well with him, and um, you know, I enjoyed having a teammate that was that was stronger than me. I could learn off them. Um, but I, I I've lost touch with him actually. So I don't know what he's up to these days, but I don't know. You know, even though what his what his career did after that, but very nice and a very nice family. They were always very good to us, and you know, would welcome us to lunch at their house. We were testing a Mugello or something like that, and 
lotus with pastas and God knows what. Around this time, obviously, your your ambition is developing. Um, you're starting to recognise where your skill is going to take you as a driver. Um, w- was your ambition to reach Formula One or to be a Formula One world champion at this stage? Sometimes it's a it's a different no, no, it's a different uh, thing. Always to be a Formula One world champion, and no other reason uh, for me to, to to get there. Uh, I did not want to be just getting into Formula One for the sake of it. Um, and and that's why I came to the decision ultimately that I did um, when after five full seasons of racing and two half seasons of you know when I beginning when I was at university and um, you know I said well if I carry on my racing can I be a world champion or not I'd raced three years in Formula Three Thousand admittedly the first year maybe not the best chassis um, but you know I hadn't won a race I hadn't had sparkling results uh, I had a podium finish at Poe one year uh, which I was still very proud of um, a bit of an incident on the podium in Poe I seem to remember well that was uh, in it, it was it was it was a bit embarrassing situation that's right quite right you got a good recall on that one well I got out the car and I was really thirsty it's an hour and a half race or something at that in the streets it was hot and uh, Alan Maben at that time my account handed me they got out the car as opera the only drink he had run was Barzine brew <laughs> 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 and that was one of our sponsors, by the way, <laughs> Bars I Brew. And, um, and so I had, you know, I was hot, I was somewhat dehydrated, and I just took the bar, and I, and I almost could feel this thing sort of, you know, like a frying pan inside my stomach, just sort of congealed, and this sort of lump of mass sort of left behind. And I, st- I wasn't feeling very well, and I got on the podium, and I was, yeah, I was sick. <laughs> and, uh, and the poor people, are, you know, were kind of trying to distance themselves. Well, wasn't wasn't your dad about to hand you the trophy as well? Was he not up there? I can't remember. I don't remember that. No, I maybe I maybe I got that bit I d- wrong. It, it I do remember I, the throwing up bit. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I don't remember him and the trophy. I can't, I admit that's possible. Maybe I was just trying to recover at that point. <laughs> I think it was. So it was uh, David was on the podium as well, DC. And Pedro it was Petrolami, that's right, yeah. And well, in 93, that same year, you also tested the Footwork F1 car. Um, how how was that test? Because obviously you had, your rate of progression had been very quick up until then. Formula 3000, a big step from F3. It must have been another huge step, having not sort of done as much racing as, as, as the others. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was Jackie Oliver called me up and said, do you want to shake the car down at Silverstone? At that point, I was still intent on becoming a Formula One driver. And during the season, I thought, absolutely, what time? <laughs> I'll be there. And it was a good car that year as well. It was full active ride and everything else. And so I did the shakedown and then um, loved it. And I drove it three times, I think, in total. I did another shakedown test and another test with... You know, all the drivers out the track, and uh, I think I, I seem to recall doing a respectable time. I think it was quicker than Verstappen at the time, but he had. Um, but I don't recall more. Well, than I, that. what I recall particularly about that is that the race after the test, you dragging me into the Paul Stewart motorhome and sitting down and complaining about the UK press bigging up Jos Verstappen when <laughs> when you and a couple of the other guys, when you compared like with like, had done at least as good a job, and you were. Yeah, it wasn't me that had written anything, but it, one of the magazines, which might be a weekly and begins with an A, had put, <laughs> had, had put Verstappen on the front cover. And you were, I remember you were, you were kind of, 
You were very, yeah, very indignant about that. That's good. Well, I'm glad I was being I don't know you feisty it. about <laughs> it. That's, that, yeah, I'm glad. But, I, but yeah. I don't know why you picked on me to have a rant at, because it had nothing to do because with me. But uh, A sounding board, <laughs> maybe. I'm glad, I, I'm glad as a sounding board then. I was, you know, you yeah, I, could, think, I, I, think I was, knew yeah. you'd tell me as it is if you, if I, if you, you know, you'd ping it back, I, I'm sure. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I I um I must have been heated about it. to be honest with you I'd I'd uh, I'd forgotten I'd been that that um sort of uh competitive about it but um I you know that I was still wanting to become a formula 1 driver and I was I believed I could do it you know I and until I felt look what's you know realistically and that's when I at the end of that season um and I, you know it's it's not it's it's coincidental that I got married at the end of that year um, but that wasn't a factor in it it was just I just stepped away and I and I thought about it and and I thought you know I only want to do this to be if I've got a potential for being a Formula One driver and I and I thought well you know I haven't if I haven't ticked the boxes yet why would it not that it would be impossible you know I mean Damon did it you know and that was sheer determination that got him there and you know total respect to him I'm not saying I could have done the same job as he'd done, but um, you know it would have been possible. But I felt that Paul Stewart Racing at that time had the potential of of growing into something more substantial, that would play an important part of my life and w- would be you know as a trade off, but it'd be stimulating and it would allow me to to, to you know to, to to live out some of my dreams. You know, so that was the that was the pendulum decision, and I made that at the end of the season. And I mean, I was I was driving well at the end of the season. I remember doing a test for Lola up at Silverstone, you know, and I was it was a Reynard Lola back to back, and you know, I mean, I, I was doing times that were incredibly quick, and I was stepping into one car doing a time. I mean, you know, much faster than pole position, colder conditions, but they were very competitive. Into another car, boom! I had such confidence, um, but you know, I just I was just rational about it, and I said. You know, I had a vision for the long term, and I saw this as a, as being something. I didn't think Paul Stewart Racing could carry on if I went into Formula One as a driver, and um, you know, my father and I had to be working together to make that happen. And to think, well, I could have been a Formula One driver, and then my father worrying about stuff, it it wouldn't have. I'm sure, I know he didn't want that, and it would have been the wrong way of going about it. Did you get cold turkey? from being a driver or did you not have the time to have a, a cold turkey a withdrawal from the buzz of driving a racing car um you know i was really good at, i was I, d- I didn't have a problem with it at all i felt when i made that decision i made the de- decision and it was in my control it wasn't mm. being forced upon me so it hadn't been taken something being taken away from me because yeah. i could have very well gone in and driven Porsche racing or potentially gone into formula one mm. that following year because there was i had been to minority uh, I'd been to Bologna, done the whole thing with them. They were trying to get me to go there, and um, y- y- you know, I, I did, You know, Jackie Oliver hadn't said no to me, and it was you know it was contingent on me bringing in a, a budget, which mm. seems incredibly small nowadays yes. when you think back of it. But it was achievable. Mm. Um, so no, I didn't. I didn't. I was all. I was good with it. I never felt like I'd missed out. Um, but also. I'd grown up with knowing that my father had stopped racing on his own terms. Mm. A bait, his teammate got killed in his last race, but um, Francois Sever. But so I, I knew that it, it, you know it was a good thing to this you know to stop mm. decide when you're when you're in control of it. Yeah. Mm. 
Now, I'm going to come on to uh, Stuart Grand Prix in a second um, and lots of the readers' questions, but I just wanted to mention um, the the offer from Mercedes this month, um, which is a 25% discount off the AMG basic training half-day course, um, which is a track driving experience with expert tuition. It's something that I could probably do with um, after my ham-fisted attempts at Blyton uh, last week. Um, experience can be booked and uh, completed, but it has to be done before May the 31st. Uh, just call Mercedes-Benz World on 0370 400 4000 and quote the offer code AMG25. Um, there's loads of stuff that you do, the slalom handling, obstacle avoidance, oversteer, understeer. Um, again, very would have been very useful before the Blyton <laughs> test last week. Um, but uh, so that's uh, the offer code AMG25 and the number is 0370-400-4000 or you can go to mercedes-benzworld.co.uk. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazing place, so it's, it's absolutely worth going to have a look at that. Um, so the Stuart Grand Prix, when, when did that decision get made and, and why? Because it, it, it was obviously a huge step up. What, what was the trigger? Well, um, uh, I, I told my father... Uh, we're in um, Florida, actually. We're doing some work with Ford Motor Company um, uh, with some vehicle dynamic engineers in, at, in Naples, Florida. They've got a track down there. And um, it was at a dinner that one of the nights that we were there, um, I told him that I'd made a decision about stopping racing. And he did not push me at all, by the way. This was completely out of the blue for him. And... Um, I said, I've thought about it. This is the decision I've come to. And I said, but, you know, I want to develop Paul Stewart Racing into something more substantial. And I, at the time, there was different possibilities. I saw uh, British touring cars, um, German DTM, Indy cars, or the dream being Formula One. To be honest, the Formula One thing was 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 just was just uh, you know was you had to have it, but I didn't think it was going to be realistic, you know. But it was still the the things that we were considering, and so um, that next you know from then on that would have been um, so that was end of ninety three, so ninety four and to some degree ninety five, much of ninety five was really spent going to races. I went to Long Beach, you know, I looked at the whole thing, the franchise system, what you put up. Um, DTM, I did all that, you know, and what at the budgets, um, British touring cars as well, and um, I guess the two we really pursued more. Uh, with the British touring car championship seemed to be an interesting one because it was on a doorstep and easiest for, for us to manage, and um, so we had all the things going. We had a had a collaboration with uh, Adrian Reynard at the time on it, and uh, we put together a good proposal. And uh, really, then my father was on a flight um, to Detroit or from the Canadian Grand Prix, and Ford were unhappy with what they were doing. And at that time, with their 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 efforts in Formula One, and um, and said, and he was talking about, he said, well, if you're interested, put a proposal in, you know, do a proposal um, to do Formula One. So uh, out of that. I got my head buckled down and put a team together and we put a proposal to Ford Motor Company, um, Rob Armstrong and myself, and um, really, we, I contacted Martin Sorrell, um, who's you know, big in the media and WPP, and asked for his guidance um, because he was doing a lot of work with Ford, as agencies were, and so um, 
he put me in touch with his, his agency in in, uh, in in Detroit and said, look, they can help you put it together and structure it in the Ford language. And, um, you know, we, 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 we went back and forwards, did the whole thing um, with them and then submitted it. You know, it's just putting all the numbers, working out the budgets. David Stubbs was involved putting the numbers in and all that kind of stuff. So it was a good little team. And then we submitted it and... Um, and they came back and said, we want to do it. And so that would have been, by this point, we were sort of getting towards the end of 95. Yeah, at the end of 95. And um, I think that's, yeah, it would have been. And then, so they said, yeah, we're on. And um, that was it. That was the start of it. So we got a you know the confirmation that we did we got turned down to the british for british touring oh. car championship by <laughs> 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 um, uh, and i won't see who it is because it, but uh, we got turned down because of they thought we're a bit concerned about the Vauxhall lotuses in your in your garage being the racing team you know and all that kind of stuff and and a formula 1 you know and uh, so we'd rather not do the touring car operation, do it with somebody else. I thought it was a feeble excuse. But the same day, we got the confirmation, we got the Formula One deal. I thought, well, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> you know? But it's different people. <laughs> well, it, was, it must have been quite daunting, even after that sort of, um, you know, that faith from Ford to step up to Formula One. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a competitive environment. All motor racing is, is, to a certain extent, competitive. But Formula One, you know, is known as the piranha pool. Um, were you at all concerned? I mean, you know, bearing in mind that fifth race, you've uh, finished second. I mean, it must have been quite an incredible journey. Um, well, you know, basically, you're just ignorant and you're brave and you just got to go ahead. You know, I was at, uh, I was ambitious and you don't worry about these things and thick skinned and you think, well, I've got a year to set up a Formula One team. You just got to get it done. You don't think I can't do it. You know, it's get it done or not do it at all. So it never, never occurred to me that I, oh, I'm getting into some nasty bits of work here. And I mean, actually, the clever thing that we did was we went about it and no one actually knew about it, that we got the deal from Ford. I mean, not even Bernie did. Because um, he, I remember we got a whole bunch of coverage and I, uh, you know, you always know when Bernie sort of is interested or something. And I walked into a restaurant in London and he was there. And he was like, you know, on to, and it normally just ignore me. And I'm like, he was, but no one knew about it. And um, so, so it was, you know, the Piranha Club thing is, um, fortunately I'd known people for many years already because I'd grown up with it. And people like Ron Dennis, I, I, I respected highly and, and, and so on. And, and, you know, Frank and obviously Ken Tyrrell, you know, is a, as a family member, really, Ken, or, and uh, so there were certain elements there which I felt I could talk to people and, you know, trust what they were saying, or or they wouldn't deliberately try and and and, and put me off course. So, but yeah, no, ignorance, ignorance is bliss, really, and um, and fortunately, we get people in that were that, that shared the vision and, and knew it could be done. I, just, I, I do recall. Uh, I came up to, uh, well, it had been your Formula 3 workshop. It became the Stuart Grand Prix base, and it's now the Red Bull factory. It's still the same place. But I came up there in 96 as it was all coming together. You invited Mark Skews night there for, for lunch. And I'd, you guiding us around the place, I mean, I'd never seen anyone quite so 
full of enthusiasm for it. It was lovely. I mean, but it, just to see this thing coming up, and but your, I mean, your passion for the whole thing. I mean, it really. Mark and I left. Up, yeah, he really is you know, up for this, isn't he? I mean, it was, it was fun. It was fantastic to see. Well, I'm, I'm glad I left that impression again. You're probably going, this guy's never going to do it, but I'm glad he's got the enthusiasm, you know. <laughs> Lisa's yeah, keen. So by that point, we were doing that. We had, we were, we had, we had, in 96 is when we were creating the team. Yeah, we yeah. were hiring, I was hiring all the people. Gary Anderson was already with you and quite a few the other world people. Would, uh, and Gary didn't join us. Oh, no, no, it would have been no, Alan Gary. Jenkins. Alan, yeah, sorry, Alan, yeah, it was, yeah. Again, yeah, it was Alan, yeah. Um, well, and, and various other people were there and you, all the CAD stuff was installed. You wouldn't let us see the drawings, but the, um, all the CAD stuff was installed. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a functioning racing team. Yeah, the the the, the design office was in our was in the the truck bay of the of the of our, you know we just kicked the trucks outside <laughs> and and that became the design office. I had Alan was uh, was one of the first hires and I knew I needed to have a technical guy that I respected. Uh, Alan had done a very good job that year and the year before with the arrows which I drove at Silverstone. Uh, they were struggling as a team I think financially at the time and. Um, I called Alan up and I, I said, are you interested? And he goes, you know, yeah, I'm interested. So we had a conversation, we struck a deal very quickly. Um, and that was a key because the fact that they were also just down the road in, in you know, in Bletchley or, you know, it's technically Milton Keynes. Um, he just had to sort of, instead of taking a right at the roundabout, <laughs> he took a left and he got to us. Um, but yeah, it was a very simple setup back then, but it, we got it done, yeah. Now, I keep mentioning these readers' questions. I really should take some. Um, I've got one uh, to hear from Bob Spry. Uh, Hi, Paul. I hope this finds you well. Was Jan Magnussen really as lazy as they say? Could he have done more <laughs> to realise the potential your dad saw in him? Obviously, he drove for Stuart Grand Prix the first, first two years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Jan, Jan Magnussen. Well, uh, well, my first meeting with Jan was my father and I. We met him at Heathrow. Uh, airport and he had sort of cleaned up that year in the championship he was doing and we met up one of the airports there one of the airport hotels and um, you know he showed up with jeans t-shirt jean jacket not the best way to impress my father in this instance but his 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 thankfully for him his record spoke for himself spoke for itself and um, he came and drove for Formula 3 for us um, and um, you know he was he was just so relaxed and easygoing. I mean, he had an aura about him that year that was, a, you know, there was magic dust on him, really. And he just was so confident. Um, and whatever it was, it was frustrating because he was, uh, you know, there was, there was an, a sort of a, a communication enthusiasm that, that was, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't easy to sort of to get along with. But you know, a lot of guys that are really good aren't. And so um, I respected that still because he could deliver in the, on, in the car. Um, you know, he smoked, uh, you know, and that was never a great thing as a, as a young race driver to sort of be. But, you know, it, still he was winning races. Um, but I still saw the potential in, them in, in the right environment. And, um, you know, he was uh, ambitious. Um, but, you know, at the end, he didn't have enough of a, of a work ethic that was going to, the, the talent alone is going to get you a certain position, but then it's the work ethic and, and really, uh, it's not just fitness, but it's, it's just working with the engineers and beyond, you know, with your track engineer. And I think Jan, um, 
maybe didn't make the most of that opportunity. I'm sure he was frustrated by certain things um, that we didn't do well as a startup. Um, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I remember doing we're doing a money raising thing in Denmark, and we'd all my father organised it, and we're all out there, and it was at the top of building. It was um, a caviar distributor, and he'd got some of his key people to to be there uh, for this lunch. You know, Jan shows up late. You know, I mean, it was you know you get there early for that kind of stuff, and it was things like that. Unfortunately, I think I don't want to be negative on Jan because I you know I love him dearly, and he was hugely talented. But I think there was a part of him that possibly uh, an ingredient that he, he that, that missed. But he had the talent, and I and he justifiably felt upset when we let him go in uh, in ninety eight in the middle of the season, the Canadian Grand Prix. And uh, it was not, you know, and it, things were just beginning to come into place, ironically, but did he have the potential to deliver longer term? And we had to have these question marks. And um, I wish it had worked out. And I love to, s and I love the fact that Kevin has made it into Formula One, because Kevin was just, was was born when, Ke when Jan was racing with us in Formula Three. So I remember that well. And, um, and interestingly, it was Jos Verstappen who replaced yeah. replaced him, and and obviously Max now and, and F1 as as well. Yeah, well yeah. but in the same, circle. you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Max in the same team, you know, in, in the same team that his father was racing in, effectively the same company. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it was um, uh, yeah. Jost drove for, drove for for half a season for us, and. Um, you know, it was it it was good. He, he he did a good job for us, but in the end, we want to go for Johnny for ninety nine. I'm glad we did. Interestingly, for 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 Jan as well, is that that moment could have finished his his career. I mean, psychologically, it could have affected him seriously. But he he continued and made um, a steel racing today. He's been a Corvette works driver for a long time, and I think it's credit credit to him that he's still a professional racing driver. Whereas others may may have broken them that yeah. in that moment. Oh, well, I, again, you know respect for anyone that can that can do have a career that long in motorsports and his talent is is enormous there's just he's got something that you know gives him an understanding of the car and you know i'm sorry that we couldn't you know do create an environment or or work with him close enough to say look come on you need to do this this and this because it's, it was a huge talent and and in you know in formula three that year he just everything he couldn't get it wrong you know and it was just so relaxed and but you know, maybe it came too easy for him, and he thought, "Well, if I can do that now," and I'm, and I'm, I'm, you know, I obviously I've heard, you know, how things were. I was always interested in what happened when he was doing things, and you know, he probably could have worked harder in the gym, <laughs> things like that. Um, so I'm sure he would stick his hand up on certain elements, but um, but I'd happily have a beer with him anytime. I remember one of his management team at the time saying that um, one of the biggest challenges with Jan was getting him out of the pub and into the gym. And, and, it, and, it, was, and it was a very, you know, it was very challenging. Yeah. I think my wife would say the same thing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got another question here from Ed, Alf Wald. Um, and he says the SF3 was a great car. What are your memories of that crazy race at the Nürburgring when Johnny Herbert got the win? Um, what memories was just being disappointed, qualified badly. And we were like something like Diamond 14th, 15th, or something really badly. Can't qualified. recall. Hmm? Can't recall. Sorry, um, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, uh, it was not a good qualifying that we did. 
I don't, can't remember what happened, but it, the car had been a good car all year, and we had led different Grand Prix. We led in Brazil, we led in at the French Grand Prix, so the car clearly was was a good car, and um, we were lucky that race, and um, it was great to get the win, you know. But you know, really, um, at that point, I mean, the most emotional result for me was Monaco '97. Uh, without question, that was a really emotional, professional experience that, you know, was, was it was very surreal. Winning that race, there was an element of, okay, we were lucky, but we had finished in the podiums that season regularly, or we were, you know, we were regularly scoring points anyway, and, um, and then could have scored more if the car hadn't had a problem. Um, so, I, I was, I, I wouldn't say it was enormously emotional. I remember we left the track, um, and I remember I'm on the way to the airport. Norbert Haug calls me up, and he goes, "Where are you?" You know, and who's Norbert was running the was the Mercedes representative, you know, running for, for, with McLaren there, and uh, he was all pissed off that I'd left the track. You know, he said, "Get your ass back here. We need you know the rest of it." So um, it was a professional thing. You know, I was ready for the next race and. So I don't know if that answers the question, no, but no, it, was, it, does, it was it was it was it was great. Um, I, well, I tell you what, here's another memory from it. Um, um, you know, we could have got a one-two there, and uh, at the time it was raining, and Rubens came on the radio and he said, "Shall I come in now?" No. If I had said come in now, he would have won the race and Johnny would have been second. But it was not protocol for me to override and call in because if it had gone wrong and I had stuck my neck out, but it would have meant stacking the um the the cars or whatever it was something anyway but he had to do an extra lap and that lost him that time that allowed truly to get in front of him but I, that's the, that's my memory of that race is rubens coming on the radio and then by the time i was going to give him an answer he was past he was past it what 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 did you think of rubens as a driver i mean obviously he's, he's still doing bits pieces now but um when he was with you i mean he he uh, there was so much kind of excitement about him early on in his career. Is just a really, really fast driver. Um, what, what are your memories of him driving for you? Well, I mean, I knew him and I watched him. You know, it was from a Vauxhall, if you like, because we were obviously in the game then with Paul Stewart Racing. So he hadn't raced for us, and he raced against us. And obviously, in Formula Three, he was with Dick Bennett's and Coulthard was was his main rival that year. Um, and uh, so I was always impressed by his speed uh, and natural talent. Um, and I mean, I uh, what well, memories of Rubens? And uh, I mean, I I had a great relationship with Rubens. I, I really got on well with him. And he needs to be loved. He likes that sort of arm around you. And you, if there's a problem, Rubens might have got um, you know if you could settle that problem. And it was generally pretty straightforward to settle. You know, he was you know he was uh, the next race. You know, would fly, and um, he came to me. At the, the, my first proper contact with him was in um, the Portuguese Grand Prix of '96, and at the time we were trying to get Damon to come and join the team, and uh, he was poised to win the championship. And I said, if we're serious about this, and the world champion is potential, the, the potential world champion is 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 going to be is available, um, we should go for it. And uh, I guess the announcement had been made that he wasn't going to race with Williams or something at that by that point. So we were full throttle trying to get Damon. And then when that 
didn't work out. At the time, I had previous discussions with uh, Rubens, and it was Gary Anderson and Rubens that came to me to, together. We had a meeting in the Ford Motorhome, and uh, Rubens was not in a good state. He wasn't happy with the team. He was flustered, and um, and I and I, I you know I, thought I can work with Rubens. I know him. I wanted a driver I could look in the eyes and say, you know, and work with him, basically. And um, he ticked that box, and I, I really enjoyed my time with him. I, we still are close. Um, and, um, you know, he, uh, it's a shame he couldn't have won a race for us because you'd observe to, because Rubens um, was really the backbone of the success of, of uh, from the driving side of Stuart Grand Prix. Which gave you the greatest satisfaction Standing on a podium yourself, or seeing your car on a podium in Formula One? Uh, I, I seeing the car on the podium in Formula One. I mean, I remember when that race finished, um, going up to the podium. I thought, you know, everyone runs up to the podium from there, and we were, I don't know where we were, uh, we're other end of the. We had a bad year in '98, so we were down the other end. So a long way to run to get the podium. And uh, we had our wet weather gear on. And my father had his wet weather gear on, and I and there was this sort of moment of like who goes up on the podium sort of thing. And uh, and I know him well enough. And I looked at him and said, "You better take your trousers off. You're going on the podium. <laughs> you know, better take your wet weather gear off." <laughs> and uh, and and that was my sort of sort of gesture to him, if you like, um, without it becoming a. And uh, so I was very proud to see them both up there on the podium. Uh, my father up there, and obviously Rubens and Johnny. I felt for jo I felt for 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 Rubens because you know obviously he, he felt that the wind was in his grasp, and um, you know, but uh, uh, you know it was it was a great moment. You know, well, when we're running out of time uh, very quickly, but we have a few more questions I'd like to get in. You were talking about your your dad just then. There's there's a question here from Anthony Jenkins. Um, and he's asking, what is the best characteristic you've inherited from your father, and what is the worst? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Simon I'm, could I'm, answer I'm both. Merely, one of you guys I'm merely <laughs> passing on the message. Don't so, um, yeah, from Anthony. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm determined. I, that's certainly my father determined. The worst I've got from my father. I, I mean, I, over to you, you guys. I'm, I can take anything. I, you know, we're, I'm we're, saying nothing. Uh, I've I'd taken some qualities from mother too, as well, which uh, is, is, I'm enormously proud of. Um, but. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I know I'm, I'm full of limitations. I'm a dyslexic. Uh, my approach to things is sometimes unorthodox, but there's enthusiasm there. And I found in life that that's the key ingredient, making things happen. You know, if you're too clever about stuff, you're going to think about all the problems and, uh, and convince yourself that something's not possible. Whereas if you're just a little bit blissfully ignorant about something, you just, you just go for it. And then you sort the problems out as they come along. Yeah. Well, there's a question here from Jamie Smith, who's asked a few, but there's, there's one about um, Francois Severt. Uh, he, he's a huge Francois fan, and he'd love to hear any memories that you may have of him. Obviously, you were extremely young um, when he died, um, but did he leave an impression on a young Paul Stewart? Well, the biggest impression Francois left on me, I mean, it was always his presence was firmly felt in our family because I knew how close my parents were to him. But unfortunately, my best memory of him is being when he got killed. And um, because I remember, well, I was seven years old and um, and we were staying at some friend's house because my parents obviously away at the Canadian Grand Prix. I was staying at some friend's house and then boarding at the school uh, during the week. 
and um, and the TV news came on and it said that Jackie Stewart and Francis Sever encountered death at Watkins Glen today. So I, here I was being telling you know that my father had died, and and I as far as I'm concerned, he, my father was dead. You know, and I was trying to rationalise. This not can't be possible, you know. Not, I mean, Joe Bonnier's kids I used to go to school with. They had uh, his dad, uh, York, and all these things. I thought, and they had said actually, Joe Bonnier's kids. And they remember on the bus one day going to school, they said, "Your dad's going to be next," because their dad just died. So they figured, well, it's obvious. So I thought, here, it, you know, it is now time. And I, and I, uh, and then I was told after that actually uh, they got clarification because he obviously didn't have mobile phones and everything else and internet. And uh, it was Francois that had died and not f my father. So there was an element of relief, sadly. Um, but I remember it very, very well. And it marked my, you know, it was an important sort of ingredient in my growing up. Blimey. Um, sorry about that, guys. No, so no, sorry, no, no, no experience cheerful. that, you know, no one would ever want to have to go through. But, uh, yeah, but um, he was, but I guess a positive one of Francois. I mean, I, I, you know, my father has great stories about him, but, you know, there's one picture in, in one of the scrapbooks at my parents' home, and it's him showing up for the Paris Motor Show um, with a fur coat on. And it was obviously for an early morning appearance, and it was, he was scared, he arrived there, and he brought Bridget, Bridget Bardot with him, and no one knew that he was with Bridget Bardot. And he arrived for an early morning appearance. Generally suggests he didn't pick her up, pick her up on the way there. And this glamorous Frenchman who was, you know, as good looking and with Bardot, and he he was he he was an extraordinary man, and uh, had a you know had a really good impact on our family. God, we think we think Lewis is is Hollywood at the moment, but is there yeah. anything <laughs> no, is there anything work. cooler than turning coats. up in a fur coat yeah. to the French yeah, Grand Prix exactly. with Brigitte Bardot? Yeah. Um, now I've just got time for sort of another couple of questions. Uh, so this is this is another one from Jamie actually, who has a real soft spot for Stuart Grand Prix, um, a startup team done properly and achieved great success in its short lifespan. Um, he wants to know: Was it a wrench to sell to Ford, or did you view it as a somewhat of a relief? The pressure to get it right and then maintain a high level of competitiveness must have been enormous. You know, we would never set the company up for sale. I thought, you know, if it ever was going to be for sale, it would be a going sort of concern with different arms to it that were, you know, that were working with manufacturers or whatever they were doing. And, um, you know, I saw sort of like 18, 20 year horizon sort of thing. And when Ford said to us, look, we want to have our own Formula One team, we want to do the Jaguar thing, etc. we want to buy it out. Um, you know, it, it, we could have gone and said, no, we're not doing it, but they would have gone elsewhere. And without a manufacturer in Formula One, it's a completely different story because you can't attract the sponsors and everything else. So in the same way, when you're... So I um, I wouldn't say it was a relief when we sold it, but, um, you know, financially, it, it, it created opportunities that I'd never expected at that early stage of, of my young professional life. Um, so there were pluses in that, but that wasn't, you know, I, 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 I guess I was worried that if we had not sold to them, we'd have been in this huge dilemma of how do we keep banks like HSBC and our big sponsors who wanted to be with a, with a manufacturer like a Ford backing it all up. Um, and I think probably the other thing was, you know, if in hindsight it happened at a perfect time because I get you know I, I managed the transition unknowing, but I was unknowingly you know I developed cancer by then, so any regrets I had uh, when I was told I had cancer to go through the chemotherapy thing and that was in 2000, at, you know Imola uh, first European race, 
you know, it all sort of like, oh, thank God for that. You know, that's good timing because I can concentrate my treatment and hopefully getting better and getting out of it. Just on a, on a related question, what do you make of the fact that the Ford Motor Company, big global automotive institution, kept the team for five seasons and had a couple of podiums but never really made fantastic progress? And then a fizzy drinks company comes in takes over that team and within five seasons has turned it into a race winner and a title challenger and as we subsequently saw a multiple champion well i think um when we entered formula one what red bull are doing now was what we that was our that was our ambition i mean we were only doing it to to, to win and i and i think um i think financial circumstances changed priorities for ford um i think maybe um you know they they were trying to do it maybe in a, in a more economical way than say Mercedes and so on were doing it and other manufacturers that were sort of committed to it and um and I think that that you know I'm not saying you know it was just for because I mean we could have done more if we had bigger sponsors as well so um it's just having that 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 sort of un, you know not to say unlimited budget but what do you need to operate and then let's do it and I think we could have done that had we had all that but we were you know um, I don't know if I answered your question, Simon, but I mean, I, uh, I'm i not putting blame at anyone's feet, but I think certainly uh, Ford, I did get a letter of apology from 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 uh, from somebody senior in Ford and, and, and the way it had been handled. And I appreciated that because an acknowledgement that they underestimated what we had done. And I thought that from a big manufacturer was, was nice. And I have a huge respect for the, for the company, but I think they probably maybe had had the big company syndrome and then and maybe we behaved in a certain way that they that got their backs up into things maybe they didn't like tartan or something i don't know <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but in, in at the end i think they realized well actually bloody hell this was a this is a good job and you need to be hands-on to run a team like that and that was not the way they were going to do it that well, I think a very fitting note to end on. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, hope you enjoy your lunch with Andrew um, coming up now. So you've had a double whammy of talking about your, your career. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm sure it'll be delicious lunch, but thank you so much for joining us. Nick, thank you very much for joining us, and Simon. And as always, thank you so much to Alan for making us all sound better than we are in real life. Uh, we'll see you all in a couple of weeks for another Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Bye-bye for now. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.